Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Student Sleep Health Awareness Week occurs every September, and AASM members are working hard to provide sleep education for students and parents. We know that 70% of high school students don't get enough sleep, and this continues through college. Insufficient sleep isn't the only sleep-related issue impacting our college students. Dr. Shelley Hirschner has developed a collegiate sleep disorders clinic, which offers an expedited evaluation of students. She's an associate professor of neurology at the University of Michigan. Through her research, she has found that there are also certain populations of students, such as transgender students, who may be at higher risk of sleep disorders and is here to help us understand the significance of this issue and how we can better serve our college students. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you have a unique program focusing on sleep in college students. Tell me about this. So I've actually been doing this for quite a while. It's interesting. I started working at University Health Service Center during my sleep medicine fellowship at the University of Michigan, and I was actually moonlighting as a neurologist. And it wasn't surprising that when I'm talking to a lot of students about their headaches, that sleep came up. Ah. And then I realized like how disordered their sleep was, what they're often they were getting insufficient sleep, their just general lack of knowledge. And then the other part that was interesting, as part of my sleep medicine fellowship, you know, we would take a look at papers. And a lot of times it was college students that they were using as, quote, the healthy norms right. for, <laughs> for, these par- for these studies. And it was just so funny because, number one, they weren't healthy norms. It was just that college students are poor, so they're willing to right. do some of these crazy sleep right. studies. Like, for example, I remember one, like they basically put some college students in, you know, a dark room and they were on average falling asleep in 2.2 minutes. And it was still, those are listed as the healthy norms. So it was from kind of that perspective that I've been, I've morphed into doing this collegiate sleep disorders clinic. Oh, so you were telling me about a study that looked at sleep among college students. Tell me more about that one. So in general, um, many college students report um, insufficient sleep, poor sleep. And when you look at this one particular large data set called the National College Health Assessment, they found that sleep is the third biggest barrier to academic performance. Wow. And the first and the second barrier is stress and anxiety. So, of course, you know, it all wraps in together. Hmm. So sleep is pretty high. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they definitely are. You know, if you think about it, some of the pressures that a college student has is one, a variable schedule. You know, they have oftentimes like three different sleep patterns. Mm. They have like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then a Tuesday, Thursday, and then a Saturday, Sunday sleep pattern. And not surprisingly, a lot of, you know, poor sleep habits as well as that. Yeah, I learned really early on not to sign up for those 8 a.m. classes. (laughs) And even 9 a.m. is probably (laughs) too early. So is it all insufficient sleep and sleep scheduling? No. So my general experience is that 
it's often insufficient sleep for the undergraduate students, mm. period. And some of that's actually not even bad behavior, right? So you have a circadian rhythm, which is encouraging them to go to bed, you know, typically between 12 to 2. I would say 90% of college students are going to bed at that time, right? But the other part of it is like, even if you try to give recommendations to get off of their electronics, these college students really can't. Right. Because all their study material is on a computer. Yeah, that's very different than when, when we were in undergrad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, many of them all say, is there something that you can do paper? And they'll think about all their classes and there may not be one single thing that's actually not on their computer. Yeah, it's true. My husband's having a really hard time wrapping his brain around the idea that our kids don't have textbooks. <laughs> you know, he's always like, well, pick up your textbook. And they're like, Dad, we don't have a textbook. It's all in our Chromebook. And the other part that's assignment times, you know, they don't walk to class anymore and turn in a paper. Their mm. assignments are due at like midnight, 3 a.m., 6 a.m. So that also influences it. So I did see something about that where they were advocating to get rid of the 1159, you know, the, the midnight deadline and that they wanted um, the, the deadline. And this is even for high school. They wanted that deadline to be 5 p.m. or end of business day because kids were up so late trying to complete these assignments. I think that that would be a good step. Yeah, it was, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but I thought, oh, well, that makes perfect sense to me. And why don't we do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think more research is needed. Mm. But part of that is, you know, those are individual professors that are making those decisions. Mm. So we have to kind of get the information about sleep, mental health, assignment time to the professors who are making that decision. And then the other part for like school class start time, mm -hmm. you know, you can have a movement at the high school level, but at the college level, it's often like the availability of rooms. And right. I don't necessarily see that, you know, universities are really focusing on that part of it. Right. Because then all of a sudden these are young adults. Right. They're not the they're not the children anymore. Well, they're just like, OK, we have X number of rooms. Mm -hmm. We have to fill these classes. This is you know, this is what we have. We just mm -hmm. need to maximize our space. Yeah, I get that. I get that. We get that with ice time and hockey, too. <laughs> so they, they, you know, the adults have late ice time um, because the kids, are, you know, the kids preferentially get the the earlier ice time. But yeah, it's a limited resource. So so I get that. So how did this then lead you to your interest in transgender students? So I was at a conference, actually, in Washington, D.C. This was several years ago at so the American College Health Association. So it's a large conference for really college health providers through all of the United States. Huh. And it was just a nice meet and greet. I was chit-chatting with some colleagues who were doing research on transgender students. And then I was just realizing, okay, you have this subset of young adults who already have sleep problems. And then all of a sudden you put the issues, the stressors of being transgender. And I realized that they're, you know, they must have significant sleep issues. Mm -hmm. Then I went back and, you know, started to look into available research and almost none. Like really there was maybe two or three case reports and that was about it. 
That doesn't surprise me. And then the other issue is like when I want to start to look into it, you have to realize the number of people reporting being transgender is relatively low. Mm. So you need essentially a very large data set. And then for other data sets, you know, these questions probably weren't even asked, right? So right. for many data sets, it would still just be a binary construct. So um, I did, was able to get information from the National College Health Assessment, which is a huge assessment that looks at mental health, healthy habits, sleep, mood, you know, many, many different domains. Mm. Um, but they do have information on both sleep, wellness, and um, gender. So I've read a couple of the articles that you've written about sleep in transgender students. And one of them that really caught my attention was when you talked about the risk of suicide. So we recently did an episode on The Mind After Midnight, which explored the increased risk of suicide in the middle of the night. And I thought that there were some common themes here. So tell me more about this. Yeah, I think that when we take a look at mental health in transgender individuals, this part is what's the most daunting and the most alarming. And this National College Health Assessment, we really saw that there was an increased risk of suicide attempts that were fourfold, which just makes my heart just stop. It does. And, um, you know, other studies have shown that same. So that's suicide attempts and just suicidal thoughts is like a threefold increase. When we take a look at other, you know, mood, you know, depression, anxiety, hopelessness, sadness are, are all increased. And this is compared to um, their college age peers, I'm guessing. Yeah, compared to um, what would be termed cisgender, so non-transgender students. So what about sleep disorders among transgender individuals? So, you know, we have really two different papers that I have done. One looked at specifically at college age students. So that was from the National College Health Assessment. And we had approximately, so they had, you know, 200,000 in that sample size and approximately 3,000 of them identified as being transgender. Mm. The other data set was a, a claims database from people that were 12 to 25 years. So not necessarily students, but um, many of them would have been in that same general age. Mm. And what we find is that if you look at any sleep disorder, they have an increased risk, um, almost 4.5. And of the different other sleep disorders, insomnia is very prevalent with an increased odds ratio of 5.9. Um, sleep apnea, not quite as much, but the sample size was lower. Mm -hmm. And so that was 3.2. Um, and then when we just look at sort of sleep symptoms, they are more likely to wake up, you know, unrefreshed, harder um, to fall asleep at night, um, more likely to be sleepy during the day. Mm -hmm. um, and then also to report, you know, any sleep disorder. I've read some case reports about sleep apnea, for example, and how um, sleep apnea resolved when they were transitioning to female with hormones um, and how it appeared 
when transitioning to male with testosterone. So is there any data to support this or are these just case reports? So in general, those are case reports, but that's part of the mechanism that I think really, excuse me, puts this population at increased risk. So when you take a look at um, using endogenous hormones, so a lot of times we would affirm, we would describe that as gender affirming therapy. Mm -hmm. So we know that estrogen and progesterone increase upper airway dilator muscle activity and is also a respiratory stimulant. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who is transitioning to being female, that could actually be protective. The testosterone's harder to know, um, but we, so it's kind of, if someone's on testosterone, you're gonna be having decreased estrogen and progesterone. So is that like being perimenopausal Mm. or is there an actual effect on testosterone itself? And I would say we don't really know that data out there. We do know in um, men who are testosterone deficient, and Mm -hmm. go on testosterone, that they have an increased risk of developing sleep apnea. But that's not, you know, you're not comparing apples to apples, but it does suggest that testosterone may have some mechanism to increase sleep apnea. Well, so that's what I was wondering, because we we see, you know, we have a population of men that do take supplemental testosterone. And then, you know, we we do kind of see that some of them have worsening of their sleep apnea and maybe we increase their pressure or what have you. And so I, I just kind of wondered if this was something that we needed to be mindful of. Well, I definitely think in the non-transgender population, absolutely. And I think that the fact that we are identifying patients with transgender patients with sleep apnea, we may have to think about it um, as they transition on gender affirming hormones. But I think the big walk away is we just need more research. Mm. But I did also want to talk about one other part of the study. When So gender affirming therapy, one of the treatments is hormones like we were talking about. And in that database study, we found that patients who were on gender-affirming therapy actually were less likely to have sleep disorders. So when we looked at um, insomnia, Mm. um, that decreased. So its odds uh, ratio was 0.5. Sleep apnea uh, was non-significant, but the sample size was really small. Mm. That was only like 23 patients. So I don't think we can really draw anything from that. But this is really important, one, because, you know, so maybe gender-affirming therapy is actually protective for some, but Mm -hmm. I'm most thoughtful about that with the insomnia aspect of it. Um, But also for insurance companies covering this for transgender individuals, you know, this might be part of the information to kind of support its use. Well, and that makes sense to me, right? Because you're improving their mood and gender dysphoria, I assume. Yeah, that's exactly what, you know, one other possibilities from it. So going on, you know, gender affirming therapy, less gender dysphoria and possibly improved mood. Um, maybe that decreases minority stress or, you know, just their overall sense of well-being, which would make sense that their insomnia symptoms may improve. And so these studies were done in the U.S., right? Uh, yes, both. And so tell me about, um, you had also talked about a Canadian study. 
Yeah, so in the one looking specifically at college students, we took a look and we compared their risk of mood disorders in Canadian students who are transgender compared to US. And what was significantly different was um, less depression, hmm. less anxiety, less hopelessness, less um, thoughts of self-harm or suicidal thoughts. Unfortunately, um, suicide attempts was not different. Ah. But okay. there was definitely improved mood in Canadian transgender students as compared to U.S. I wonder why that is. Yeah. I mean, that it gets, you know, you really would have to kind of extrapolate. Mm -hmm. Is there, you know, a different political environment or mm. more support at the college level? You know, I, I think it's all kind of a guess, but it certainly suggests that there may be factors at the university level at in Canada that we may want to kind of implement in mm. our campus campuses. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about sleep and sleep disorders in transgender college students. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Contribute to the future of sleep scoring by participating in Sleep ISR record rewards. Submitted sleep studies will be used to build a diverse catalog to evaluate artificial intelligence sleep scoring software. Labs that submit records can earn points redeemable for rewards. Learn more at sleepisr.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guest today is Dr. Shelley Hirschner, and we're talking about sleep in college students and specifically in those who identify as transgender. So Shelley, tell me why sleep might be more of an issue for transgender people. Yeah, so when I started to think about potential mechanisms and why I thought there was significant chance that transgender people would have sleep issues is one, this high risk of mood disorders, mm. right? So we certainly know symptoms, insomnia, we have a strong bi-directional relationship. But you also have a marginalized population and they have higher... Um, psychosocial stressors. There's this general concept of um, minority stress. So mm. that when people are at increased risk of discrimination, psychosocial stressors, economic stressors, that we know that they have increased vigilance, increased um, basically physiologic reactivity, and that that can contribute to um, insomnia and other sleep issues. The other part is many of them may have difficulties with um, insurance, getting mm. insurance coverage. So I think all of that really, unfortunately, makes kind of the perfect storm of having this population likely to have sleep issues. Mm. And then as we referenced before, we, you know, gender affirming therapy may be very helpful for gender dysphoria for mood. <clears throat> But what are these endogenous hormones doing to sleep? Right. Um, interestingly, there was one study that actually showed that um, when someone is put on uh, estrogen, so uh, uh, a male transitioning to female, they actually have hot flashes. Oh, okay. 
So the mechanism, I mean, that's not at all what I would think, right? Right. Because I would think it would be somebody who was going on testosterone that would have the hot flashes. But so, you know, there's just so much that, that we need to know more. But yeah, it seemed to have that change in testosterone was resulting in hot flashes that was disruptive to sleep. The other part is, and there's this wonderful qualitative study out of, excuse me, out of New York, where they basically went out and they interviewed um, transgender individuals. And a lot of what they were talking about is like sleep being such a vulnerable state mm-hmm. for them. And in this paper, because it was a qualitative study, they had just these really moving quotes. Like one person talked about that they still, I'm going to just read the quote, I still sleep with a stuffed animal. I used to do that in part because I was shielding my arms from my chest. I didn't want to touch my chest in my sleep and be aware of things that I didn't want to be reminded of. Whereas I've had top surgery, so top surgery is removing breasts, so I don't have anything to be hitting all night and worried about that. Wow. So, and you know, I never thought about that, but if you are uncomfortable having breasts and you're sleeping and your arms touch them, then, you know, I think that can just bring up all sorts of emotions that, that are difficult. Mm, and Well, and that's something important for those of us who study their sleep, right? And our sleep technologists then. Yeah, and exactly. You know, we're t- asking this population that may feel uncomfortable in the healthcare environment to come in to place themselves in a vulnerable position. And one, you know, they also know that they're going to be watched. Mm. And they're getting, you know, you know, your abdominal and your thoracic belt above and below in your chest. So that can be uncomfortable for any transgender individual. So what can we do then to be more aware and more sensitive to this? So, you know, there is a lot that we can do. Mm. Part of one, I think, is just being cognizant of how difficult it may be for a transgender individual to go into the healthcare system. Um, and part of the research that, or, you know, that I, in my background reading, the most common place where a transgender individual experiences discrimination is actually in the healthcare setting. Wow. Which is just so disheartening. And, you know, a quarter of transgender people avoid getting medically assessed because they're worried about discrimination and they're uncomfortable with the healthcare system. So 25%. Yeah, 28%. Wow. And I know that this is true, that, you know, 50% of transgender individuals report that they have to teach their providers about being transgender. I, I believe that. I believe that. So, you know, the thing is we can, you know, one, we can, you know, learn the terminology. We can understand that although it's challenging for us, that it's so important for us to use someone's preferred or chosen pronouns. Mm. Um, I think many people, you know, he and she are a little bit easier than someone who's non-binary and goes by they. Mm. When I was seeing a non-binary individual, I was very good on using their pronouns correctly. So I wasn't mis- 
gendering them. But when it came to my dictation, I found that it was much harder. Mm. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, you know, dictating is almost automatic. So I had to stop myself four to five times <laughs> correct it. But what was really meaningful was that the patient reached out to me because they went and looked at their dictation mm. and said how meaningful and how supported they felt when all those pronouns were correct. And it's it's amazing, isn't it? Such a small such a small thing, but just that intention and, and respect, I think, allows that patient to feel safer. You know, we talk about this all the time, how sleep is such a vulnerable state for all of us, right? Where where our guard is down and and usually we are very intentional about who gets to see us sleep, right? And then we are allowing our patients are allowing us into that sacred space. But then if you add this you know, gender dysphoria on top of it and the discomfort of somebody's putting on your, you know, your your chest lead and your belly lead. And I mean, that's probably a, a very significant barrier. Absolutely. But the other part of it is, you know, we're going to make mistakes. Right. We're going to misgender somebody. And I think if we just do a brief apology and move on, then we're, you know, acknowledging the mistake that we made, and that still helps that rapport and the relationship that we have. And they feel heard. You've hit on something really important because that is something that comes up where, you know, sometimes people are nervous. You know, they don't intend to make a mistake, and then they get worried about, well, what do I do if I do make a mistake? So it's very reassuring to hear you say you know, it's okay, just acknowledge it and move forward. Yeah, I did a talk recently to our technicians about this, and mm. they all reported that you're like, I want to be respectful, I want to help these patients, but but I'm afraid mm. to make these errors. And so talking about apologizing, the other thing is to, you know, maybe use their, their name more. Mm. You know, just so this, I have their preferred name, their chosen name, making sure that I'm using it correctly. And that way, again, that also helps just establish that relationship. So what else do you think we should be doing to help our patients feel more supported? I think a major part of this is our electronic med medical record. And a lot of that depends on whether you have any control of it. Mm. Personally, we have Epic, and I think Epic has done, at least for University of Michigan, has had some good resources. So some of the things that they include are, um, you know, sex assigned at birth, but they also have, you know, a drop-down menu for gender identity. Mm. So that a patient can identify as, you know, woman, girl, man, boy, trans woman, but they also can identify their preferred pronouns oh. and then so, and then their preferred name. So if I'm seeing a person right under their name, I can see what their pronouns are. And I think that allows it as an easier step for me to be respectful to that patient. Um, now, again, we may not have control, but if we mm. have these options in our electronic medical record, I think it's a very valuable um, tool. So Shelly, any final thoughts? I think if I was going to walk away 
with some thoughts is first, you know, we always have the scientist in us. And when we think about what these patients go through between their mood, their treatments, the hormones, we really have to be aware that they may have an increased risk of sleep disorders. Mm. And maybe we're going to be doing a sleep study on a patient because they're getting on testosterone. Maybe we need to think about, you know, future research so that we can better understand what treatment is doing and do we need to modify, you know, their pressures? Do we need mm -hmm. to have a lower threshold to do a sleep study? So I think that's one part. But I think the other major walkaway point is we have this opportunity to connect with a subset that have really had to struggle both, you know, in life and employment and in the healthcare system. And if we approach them, you know, honestly and respectfully, that we can really connect with them and, you know, help them on their journey. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about sleep and college students and for your focus on those who identify as transgender. While there's still so much to learn, at least we can help to make our patients more comfortable in the sleep lab while also advocating for our patients. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Very appreciated. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.